Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me as my guest for this episode is Duncan Barford. Duncan is the creative force behind Occult Experiments in the Home, a project which began as a blog but has expanded beyond that into a number of books and a podcast. These have all explored magic, occulture and the paranormal and focus in particular on how those areas intersect with personal experience, psychology and spiritual practice. Duncan is also a qualified counsellor and suspended the blog when beginning the training for this, concerned that the conspicuous interest in the occult might prove professionally unhelpful. Having now qualified and worked for several years in various therapeutic contexts, he is able to enjoy discussing openly his deep and lifelong interest in these subjects. In the interview, we begin by talking about how occult experiments in the home got started, which then leads to a wide-ranging discussion about magic, psychology, the nature of being, the value of experience in understanding the paranormal, and much more. Enjoy! Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for inviting me. How did the Occult Experiments in the Home project get started? Well, I think, um, like a lot of things, it was a child of the lockdown and uh, a number of other factors coming together. So I've had an interest in the occult, spirituality, the paranormal, all through my life. And... Um, recently I had a change of careers. I used to work in IT and then I decided to train as a counsellor. And I was blogging about um, the occult and all this stuff at the time. Um, But when I started training, (laughs) that kind of stuff doesn't tend to play out very well in that sort of professional arena. Um, So I took everything offline and kind of went dark for a number of years um, because I didn't think it would serve my professional interests very well. A lot of therapists and uh, counsellors and psychologists, they tend to take quite a dim view of that kind of material. So everything was put on hold. And then the lockdown came along. And I think a lot of us were probably thinking about you know, what we value in our lives. And I really, really missed writing and thinking about this stuff. Um, So I set up the blog again, and then I rapidly realised that kind of blogs were a bit passe and podcasts were 
you know, where people are at these days. <laughs> so after quite a few false starts, um, I started started the podcast, Occult Experiments in the Home. And what I set out to do with it was to kind of do a kind of brain dump, basically, where I spoke about all of the experiences that I'd had, the personal experiences in the fields of occultism, spirituality, meditation practice, practicing magic, paranormal stuff that I'd run into over the years. I just kind of spewed it all out (laughs) um, and reflected as deeply as I could on where I got to with my thinking on it. You know, what sense I have managed to make in the course of my life on all the experiences I'd had. So that's that's what sparked it all off. Cool. So you talked there about uh, a career change into therapy and psychology. Do you think that mm. your, your interest in the occult and what you were doing with that inspired that change? Definitely. Definitely. And I think it... Um, inspired my interest in that domain so when when I was growing up when I was a teenager I was interested in gothic literature horror films um, interested in the paranormal as well ghosts and UFOs all that sort of stuff and uh, I went to university and I studied English literature and there was a course melodrama and the gothic which of course you know i jumped at and as part of that course we started to read Freud and um, I'd never suspected that there was a connection there with all this dark horror occult stuff and and psychoanalysis Um, of course psychoanalysis takes a, a different view of the world but it has this concept of the unconscious of course, and the unconscious is where all our dark and weird stuff is. And um, I remember, I can't remember who it was, but somebody somebody, uh, said once that, um, you know, the Gothic, the Gothic never really went away. I mean, we think of Dracula as the last great Gothic novel, but the Gothic never really went away in a sense. It kind of turned into psychoanalysis i mean 1897 when dracula gets published you know freud is in vienna and uh, he's starting to listen to his patients telling him their dreams and their innermost dark fantasies and psychoanalysis i think is kind of the heir to to the gothic um so i was i was hooked on freud from that point onwards and and that was my gateway into um, you know, modern day uh, counselling and, and psychotherapy, which, of course, all started with Freud, although, of course, you know, it's changed enormously over the years. Mm. I, Freud and Carl Jung are the two big names in, in psychoanalysis. Um, mm. As a layperson, I'm, I'm curious, why is that? Or what was happening at that time that meant that they were able to sort of almost birthed this new field of science. Yeah, it's so strange that the person who originated all this stuff was somebody like Freud. 
because, of course, Freud had a very materialistic outlook on the world. He very much regarded himself as a scientist. And one of his earliest projects was to try and put psychology on a kind of biological basis. You know, he he was sort of sketching all these um, diagrams, um, trying to kind of give a neurobiological account of how the mind works. And, of course, he couldn't do it. And, of course, it, it, it failed. And what he had to do instead was posit hypothetical entities. <laughs> he hadn't got the biology to, to back up um, what his ideas about the mind were. So he had to posit these uh, hypothetical entities like the id and the ego and the superego. You know, there's no biological basis for these sorts of ideas. But when we look at how people operate in the world, how people think, how they behave, they're quite good hypotheses for explaining that, even though they've got no basis in reality. So what psychoanalysis is in one sense, I think, it's a kind of science fiction. Um, And there was just a lot of interest around the time of Freud and Jung, an emerging sense of the unconscious, uh, the realisation that... There's more to life than the conscious mind, than what we consciously intend and think and will. And I think it was it was that whole mixture of things that came together at that time. Um, but of course, the two of them took took very different approaches. Mm. I, I remember listening to an early episode of your podcast where you talk about um, something that that Freud wrote about melancholy and and mourning and how one of those is exhibited sort of externally and and another one is exhibited internally and and that sort of dualism seems to be something that runs through pretty much everything you know the occult and psychology and I I guess um a question I I thought would be good for this episode is when does psychology become parapsychology what is it that shifts it into the realms of occult beings and and what might be more sort of understood as the paranormal? Yeah, good question. I think the way I'd come at that is to think about the way that psychology has developed. So the inventor of psychology was William James. And, you know, back in the 19th century, he was a, a, an American philosopher and James was also the author of the varieties of religious experience um, you got the the Society for Psychical Research starting up around this time people were enormously interested in paranormal phenomena supernatural phenomena and when James starts psychology it is evidently with an intention to explore that sort of stuff to really get to grips with what the mind is. I mean, what is it? Where is it? <laughs> you know, what, it, it doesn't seem to have any obvious material basis. Um, I mean, you know, we know that if um, you, you have a head injury, you die, consciousness vanishes. <laughs> but, but 
what what is this thing how is it that um on the top of our body there's this thing our head and there's a world there a world of of meaning you know there's all of this you know what what is this where does this come from the way psychology has developed i think over the years is it's lost all of the the fascination with that it's now become basically the science of behavior um you know in order to become science you have to study something that's quantifiable and behavior is something that's observable quantifiable so it's gone down that road but in the very beginning i think the aim of psychology was very much to try to get to grips with what the mind is what the hell is this thing that's beyond the physical you know that's that's miraculous that's divine that's hiding there all the time in plain sight you know we we just take it for granted mm-hmm. so when you started doing your own magical rituals like experimenting with the alcohol um how did that start for you and and looking back, what would your take on that be from a a, a more open minded psychological perspective? Not not looking at your behaviour, but looking at your I guess your exploration of of the mind. Mm. Well, I think um, this is what magic's all about. It's about a very direct encounter with that subjective dimension of experience that I was just talking about. So. I got involved with uh, a form of magic known as chaos magic. And this was a a form of magic that appeared in the UK in the late 70s and was pioneered, invented by uh, a guy named Peter Carroll. And it was a very simple honed down sort of magic so when when we think of magic you know we might think of kind of 19th century magicians alistair crowley the golden dawn and elaborate ceremonial rituals with incense and robes and strange gestures and chants and um, great big dusty books of magic that you have to look things up in and read things from so peter carroll came along in the late 70s and did away with all that. Um, I think a lot of what informed chaos magic was related to the punk scene at that time, you know, that ethos of just doing stuff, you know, just doing your own thing. And it doesn't matter if you only know two chords, you know, that's great. And it was importing these sorts of ideas into magic. So chaos magic is a very, very bare, pared down form of magic. And it has this concept called belief shifting. So the idea is that you can do a magical ritual. This can take any form that you like. The most important thing is what goes on inside, what goes on internally. If you can shift into a mindset where you believe that your magical intention is being brought about through performing that ritual, then that belief will have an effect. And we know from our everyday life that that's kind of sort of true. (laughs) So if you believe, if you go around believing that, you know, you're ugly and nobody likes you, (laughs) 
then you're probably going to find that you don't have very many friends. But if you believe instead, you know, that you're great and um, you've got a lot to offer the world, then, you know, suddenly that will start to happen. So if we change our belief, then we can change our perception of the world. And if we change our perception, then reality shifts. Now, you might imagine that all you're doing there is deluding yourself, really. You know, you're just doing a mental trick on yourself to make things seem other than they are. But the odd thing is that if you give this stuff a try, it's almost like the effects of that do tend to kind of spill out into reality. And I think the main thing I learned from practicing chaos magic and also from practicing meditation, in fact, is that what we call reality is something that's actually quite malleable and sort of flexible in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't do a magical ritual and expect thunderbolts to come out of your fingertips or anything like that. You know, that can't happen. But reality can be bent and shifted. So it might not be possible to do that in reality, but you might be able to have an experience of that through a lucid dream, perhaps, or taking some sort of substance if you wanted to go down that route. So chaos magic was really what brought home to me how psychology and magic can be brought together. It's we we enter into that subjective realm in order to have effects in reality, you know, and that's that's something that's really very clear in in chaos magic. Right, okay. And so something else that I am interested in is that in psychology and in magic, is there a self? Is there is there something about you that is unchangeable? Are you the sort of the the little bit of objectivity that gets to act subjectively. I that's something that I've always been fascinated by. I, but you mentioned chaos magic, which seems very much about sort of intention and and ritual. And but you also mentioned meditation, which seems to be perhaps the quieting of the self. And I mean, I'm talking to someone who is a very much a lay person in this regard. But it feels like there are sort of opposites at play here in magic and in psychology similarities too but from your perspective what is it that I guess psychology and magic share I'm sure you've already mentioned something along those lines but I I guess I'm trying to just kind of get more clarification on that (laughs) yeah yeah no I think that's a really brilliant question and I think it's also where spirituality starts to come into play so chaos magic is a really useful set of techniques for having an effect on the world you change your belief in order to change your perception and that changes your experience of reality so you can have all sorts of intentions and realize those and explore how those can be realized in different ways but I think most magicians will reach a point where they start to notice something which is 
probably themselves doing the same rituals for the same things over and over again. So, I don't know, <laughs> you know, doing the same ritual to get some cash, doing the same ritual to find a partner or a job, you know. You're doing this stuff over and over again. And is reality really changing in that case? So you begin to start to ask yourself, perhaps, you know, what is it that I really want? What What is it that I could ask for? that would mean that I didn't have to keep doing this? What would really, really change my reality? And, and you might also start to ask yourself, what am I like? Who am I if I keep doing this over and over again? And then I think we get sent on a slightly different journey. We start to look into not just how we can affect our experience, but what that experience is. And then, like you were saying, you know, meditation becomes a useful practice which enables us to quieten the mind and start to look very, very carefully at reality. And you were wondering about the self, you know, where you find the self, Rick. Um, I mean, I've been a practitioner of Buddhist meditation for for quite some time. I mean, those are the questions that Buddhist meditation particularly explores. And we start to realise that self is something very, very different from what we from what we might imagine it to be and what we're encouraged to think it is in our culture. Yeah, it is a very profound thing to to discuss i and mm. you know in a good way I, I i think i it almost feels like it's not meant to be solved like there's something ineffable about about all this and magic is great if you practice it like you've been talking about you have a set of tools to sort of explore but it's like anything you can get too conditioned to a model like magic's you know if you go past chaos magic other forms of magic they seem to have a system and and as much as that system is brilliant and and very sort of well thought out it is a model and I always wonder if you if you get too conditioned to a model of something you can't think outside of that but what do you do do you do you either decide to explore or not to explore how do you how do you find that balance between knowing that you can never know everything and wanting to try and understand things and I, I mean, I admire anybody who engages in magical practice because it, it must require a lot of discipline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if it all comes down to personality types. I don't know. I think that must play a part in it somewhere. With the kind of magical rituals that I've talked about where you're just getting stuff all of the time. You know, a lot of people stay with that. You know, a lot of magicians... Um, just stay there, you know, doing the same rituals over and over again, just getting the same stuff. And and, and that's what their magic is for. And, you know, why not? But I think I've always wanted to know the truth. Do you know what I mean? The, the exactly. ultimate truth yeah. of life, the universe and everything. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't enough for me. Uh, one of the things about chaos magic is it's very practical, very pragmatic. It's it's just basically uh, 
a set of tools and there's no rules or philosophy that tell you particularly how you should use those tools. Um, other magical systems, of course, are a bit different. So like um, Thelema, um, Alistair Crowley's um, religion, his branch of magic, that has a, a kind of moral system attached to it and, you know, some rules for life, basically. Um, and also I think that can be an obstacle to people as well. Uh, you know, people can get a bit stuck on uh, the the rules of a particular creed or dogma and sometimes that can end up actually limiting things and I think I was quite fortunate so my background was in chaos magic but I had a lot of other things coming into the mix as well such as Buddhism I've always been fascinated by Buddhist practice wouldn't wouldn't call myself a Buddhist you know I've never joined a Sangha um, but I have used Buddhist meditation a lot and one of the things about Buddhism is you're, you know, the Buddha kind of encouraged people to test out his ideas. You know, he he made a point of saying, don't take anything on faith that I say. You know, if you want to get awakened, you've got to do that work yourself. Off you go and and see what you can do. Um, I think a lot of my magical career has involved kind of exploring things and pushing into them. And then getting absolutely terrified and, and crashing out and then sort of gingerly kind of trying to push my way back. You know, um, I'm always somebody, I think, who wants to push, wants to go beyond the boundary to see what there, what's there. But generally when I do, I get terrified and, and end up, you know, sort of having to having to kind of um, tread the same path a bit more gingerly. And uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if personality does come into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, prior to this interview, we were uh, communicating by email, and you sent me a copy of a, a book you co-wrote called "Of the Blood of the Saints." And in that, you mention a part of that where you're you're communicating with uh, your holy guardian angel. And I know that you've written a book about the Abramelin ritual, which relates to that. Can you just talk a little bit about that and how? What made you want to do that, go, do, go through that ritual and meet that being, I guess? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So there's this there's this classic magical ritual in the Western magical tradition that's known as attaining the knowledge and communication of the holy guardian angel. And supposedly there's this spiritual being that guards over each one of us, our angel, which loves us and takes care of us and knows all about our destiny and is the embodiment of our true nature. And this ritual comes from a text called The Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage. And when you read it, uh, supposedly it dates back to, I think, the, the 1400s or the 1500s, something like that. But nobody's ever ever found an original copy and the earliest copy that people have got hold of I think goes back to the 17th or 18th century so so it's it's nowhere near as old as it pretends to be and this text contains instructions for a ritual a really 
difficult, challenging ritual that takes, in some versions, it's six months. I think in some versions, it's nine months to complete. And it specifies all sorts of exotic fulfillments that you need to do, um, like building a, a purpose-built chapel for you to perform the ritual in an oratory. You know, you have to build this structure and uh, you have to burn certain kinds of incense on certain days and wear certain robes and it tells you what times you're supposed to pray and, and you know it's really really kind of set out in detail and it starts off um with regular prayers to this angel um over the first few weeks and these these kind of ramp up in intensity and uh and supposedly at the end of all of this the angel is supposed to appear and it will give you a set of instructions which you can then use to bind these legions of demons. <laughs> and after you've bound all the demons, you will then have incredible magical powers that you'll be able to, to use to keep yourself safe and wealthy for the rest of your life. So that's that's the Arbramelin ritual as it's handed down through the western magical tradition and every magician i think is fascinated by this you know many try to attempt it alistair crowley uh, famously tried it a couple of times but never managed to complete it in the form that it's described in the original text but this was part of the genius of Crowley, I think. What he did was he managed to get the same result from the ritual, but doing his own form of the ritual. And he was travelling around the world at the time he decided to do this. I think he was, for a great part of it, on the back of a donkey crossing China. <laughs> so he had to do it entirely inside his mind, you know, visualising the temple rather than building it. But he claimed to have attained the same results as are described in, in the Abramelin working. The angel appeared and, uh, you know, his magical powers went through the roof and, and, and so on. So what me and my colleague and magical partner Alan Chapman did at the time was we decided to do the knowledge and communication of the Holy Guardian Angel, but using the techniques of chaos magic. And to our surprise, it actually worked. <laughs> so so how did it work? What, what were some of the results that you, you both experienced? Yeah. So, God, it's really difficult to summarise, isn't it? <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> so what, what we discovered was, using chaos magic, you can do really, really simple rituals to connect with this being and, and find out about its nature. Um, you can ask it to 
send you a dream. You can ask it to give you messages through the tarot or the runes or, you know, any other method like automatic writing or the Ouija board and give you instructions on how to make contact with it. All of this led to something totally unexpected. It took a lot of months, six, nine months, of continuous magical effort, doing these rituals, praying to the angel, meditating, thinking about the angel all the time. And what eventually happened was one day I was sitting meditating and suddenly I had a vision and it was like a dream but it was like I was there at the same time and I was in a really hot sunny country and the buildings were made out of white stone and there was brilliant sunlight but inside the buildings it was dark really cool shade inside the buildings and I was there to interview ultimate truth <laughs> I was a journalist and I was about to step into one of these buildings and interview ultimate truth and find out what the secret was of the universe so in this vision I stepped into into this room to meet this person I assumed and when I got in there, suddenly I realised that there was no difference between ultimate truth and me. <laughs> and it sounds, when you put it into words, quite corny, you know, like a, some sort of psychedelic trip or something. But suddenly I realised that that was everything, everything I'd been aiming for all along and it suddenly manifested in a completely unexpected way suddenly there was something in my mind that was beyond the mind it wasn't a thought it wasn't a feeling it wasn't an idea it wasn't a sensation it wasn't anything it wasn't anything at all and yet somehow I was aware of it. It's totally impossible. Totally impossible. And yet this thing, whatever it was, was intelligent, seemed alive, was perfect, was overflowing with goodness. It was kind of pumping out into the world. And I realised that, that that was it. This, this was what I'd been looking for all along. This was the thing that was ultimately satisfying, ultimately good. I realised in that moment as well that this is obviously what people down the ages have been calling God. Although I was an atheist at the time. It was sort of quite horrific to me, actually. Um, to be confronted with that because it wasn't what I was expecting at all. But 
there it was. It was what I'd been looking for all along. It was what couldn't fail to satisfy every need that I had, every need that anybody could ever have. And yet it had nothing to do with me. It was something from completely beyond the mind, something completely beyond the world. But somehow, impossibly, there it was. I was aware of it. So the relationship you had with it, it, it did feel like um, a, a separate being. It's so strange. It, yes, it did and it didn't. So um, I think that, that vision where I was about to step into a building and interview somebody, I think that was probably the very last moment where there was a sense of it being somebody or, or a being or, or something. And then that kind of collapsed and I realised that what what the angel is is something beyond being completely, you know, something beyond the world, something that um, is beyond creation. It's not a part of creation. It's it's beyond it. It's very, very... I mean, this, this of course, is, you know, a, a full-blown mystical experience. You know, it's, mm. it's impossible to put into words. And I'd got to this point by doing just lots of silly ass chaos magic <laughs> you know having a full-blown religious spiritual awakening you know just from doing silly rituals and, and messing around with runes and tarot cards and ouija boards and and so on wow so uh, i mean earlier on we were talking about the concept of self in, in doing this did you find that your, your sense of of being your sense of individuality the the sort of the sense of your materiality i guess lessened yes yeah i think so i think it took a blow that it could never recover from after that i mean one one way i'd attempt to describe it is there was that sense of a nothingness an absolute nothingness and yet I was aware of it. Um, so if, if we think about what consciousness is, you know, what is consciousness? Well, consciousness is, is that which enables us to perceive qualities of things, maybe. Um, so because we're conscious, we can be aware of redness and warmth and coldness and, and light and dark. You know, that's what consciousness enables us to do. But what qualities does consciousness itself have? <laughs> I mean, all those things I've mentioned are things that arise within consciousness. But consciousness itself doesn't have any of those. It doesn't have any qualities at all. It's completely empty. Completely no. And when you think about it, what that might mean is... What, what distinguishes my consciousness from your consciousness is, is whatever we happen to be aware of at the moment. You know, I'm aware of a different set of things from what you are. But consciousness itself, if it has no qualities, then there's no difference between my consciousness and your consciousness or anybody's consciousness. It's actually the same. It's actually the same consciousness. It's just one, you know, that's just just one. Although really it isn't anything, it's, it's nothing. 
I don't know if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> no, no, it does. I the more I I read about this kind of stuff across different sorts of areas of esoteric uh, writing and the paranormal and the occult, there's the um, like the interconnectedness of things. Um, I like the idea that perhaps existence, the universe, is something experiencing itself. In in the, the the book you gave me a copy of, you talk about that early on is about the value of experiencing things. Like experience is important, and I, I keep coming back to that. I guess sometimes is that perhaps the meaning of life is experience, and and that experience is is what the universe is there for. Is for is for this vast cosmic divine thing that's existed forever has always existed to experience itself perhaps but i don't know i i, I need to read way more to, to, to better kind of elucidate that opinion i think <laughs> yeah yeah i mean my reaction to that is in a sense how could it not be how could it not be i mean there's this some um, secular rationalist materialist idea that somehow we we're all separate beings living in a meaningless universe but but that's absurd because as soon as we talk about meaninglessness we're, we're putting meaning on it um a meaningless universe is not something a human being could ever experience you know our lives are intrinsically meaningful that's that's just what human experience is there's no no way around that and what you're talking about there rick you know the idea that we're all here to facilitate the divine experiencing itself i mean how how can that not be the case in a sense you know the the thing that brings home i think is everything that we do is is important you know there's there's something going on here there's a process you know the entire universe is a process and we're all playing a part in that we're all playing a part in that evolution constant shifting and changing and growth that we see all around us i think you know every every thought that we have every little stupid thing that we think you know it's it's playing its part in reality i mean how can it not be yeah i completely agree Something else I, I've come to learn is that you can pick apart the sort of materialism with a pretty straightforward thought experiments about the nature of things. And I was talking to a friend recently, just generally about a robin. Like I, I really like robins. They're a cool bird. But is a robin a robin? Because that's what we call it. But to the robin, is a robin a robin? <laughs> you know, and if you, through that, like, you, you, you kind of break through, like, the absurdity of existence. Like, everything is just sort of names that we give to things. And, you know, and, and that's part of, I guess, of finding meaning in things and understanding. If, if we have a narrative of something, it allows us to better understand the world around us. But it's, it's these kind of conversations that I think are, I really enjoy having and I guess that's probably why I like the paranormal and these sorts of subjects so much is that it 
like you were talking about, like maybe through time, that's why these things have persisted is because they're sort of, they allow these sorts of conversations. Yeah. What you describe in there with the Robin, I mean, that sounds to me like a, a contemplative practice, you know, thinking about the Robin in that way. It opens up dimensions of experience that you wouldn't actually go into. But but those sorts of practices, those sorts of lines of thinking, you know, they they have a a visceral effect. They can alter your experience. You know, just just by thinking. Um, you know, there's loads of different practices to to do this to to work on this stuff. I mean, this. There's contemplation, there's meditation, um, there's things like yoga, you know, using your body, um, entering into the experiences of your body, things like um, being of service to other people, um, things like devoting yourself to a god or goddess. You know, these are these are all branches of what's, what's called yoga. Um, they're all practices that can lead to shifts in in awareness and experience that can that can take us into this this realm you know there's a real difference between talking about this stuff and um you know thinking about it in in the everyday sense that we think about things and knowing things you know like that idea that um we we're all expressions of the divine expressing itself you know we can we can sort of know that we can sort of put that into words but i think the important thing is being able to take ourselves into places where we experience that directly and and that can be done mm. it can be done <laughs> like i said when i stumbled into that experience of the holy guardian angel you know it's completely unexpected it, it was something totally beyond what i ever imagined could be possible and yet just by doing you know consistent dedicated directed practice you can arrive at that and that's one of the things i've always tried to get over in my work you know if i've had these experiences then anybody can you know and it, it usually doesn't take as long as you might think in order to arrive at um experiences of awakening yeah yeah do you think that people can subconsciously set themselves up for this sort of experience i'm i'm thinking of um encounters with with cryptids or seeing ufos i there's something about those experiences some of them anyway that feel like they were they were almost meant for that person. They're an experience that sort of makes them aware of a, a different nature to reality or another level to, to to the world around them. I mean, as somebody who's practiced magic, is that something that you think could perhaps explain encounters with, with cryptids, things like Bigfoot and lake monsters? Yeah, I'm not sure if it would explain them at all but i certainly agree with you that these can be initiatory experiences i mean when you think about it someone sees bigfoot that's a challenge to 
their everyday experience of reality, isn't it? You know, reality for them is getting expanded. It's getting put into question. You know, you, you, you're going to be thinking very, very long and hard about your experience when you've had an encounter like that. Whether that explains the nature of these beings, I'm not sure, but I think they can be gateway experiences into, you know, deeper spiritual awakenings. Um, they can also be, I think, symptoms of the fact that that sort of a shift is is taking place for somebody. Some people, I think, have a have a gift for this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I've always had to work hard to to get into those realms but some people are naturally talented and they just go straight there and i think this as well brings us up against questions of um how can i put it it's difficult we we start to cross over perhaps into domains that sometimes are regarded in our culture as mental illness. Sometimes I think people who've had traumatic experiences in their lives, you know, accidents or terrible childhoods, sometimes they seem to be more open to paranormal experiences and also to to spiritual experiences as well. It's... What we, what we call madness can sometimes look very much like spiritual awakening you know and i think here we were, at, we're very much at the the cutting edge of what's going on in uh, psychology at the moment hmm. what is madness <laughs> um i mean we were talking earlier about how it seems unlikely that anything a human being does can be meaningless you know surely when when people are going into states of psychosis and they're coming out you know they're having hallucinations and delusions and so on you know is 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 it completely random is it completely meaningless you know i don't think so madness psychosis you know from some angles it looks a lot like some kind of process where somebody's trying to rebirth themselves, trying to come up with a new way of being in the world that solves whatever problems they were having before. You know, the line between spiritual transformation and, and mental illness can be very, very fine, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's a, a really good point. I think as well with, especially with something like Bigfoot, I mean, most of the time those encounters happen in forest and wooded areas. And I'm always intrigued by the idea that, that what's happening there is that you're connecting with a another consciousness, like a plant consciousness, maybe something that wants to interact with you. And it perhaps it creates an avatar like it it has a general idea of what you look like so it creates something to interact with you maybe not something that that literally exists but on a mental level it can it can create it and i i suppose <laughs> i mean 
are plants more magical than humans? I mean, do they? Again, this opens up so many questions. Is like, if plants have consciousness, are they inherently magical? Do they? They don't have to go through the rituals that we do. I just this 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 stuff is why I love it so much. Is because it's so weird but so interesting. Yeah, it raises the question of what a being is. And I'm thinking about retreats that I've been on, deep meditation retreats, where we were explicitly exploring these kinds of areas. And and often uh, there would be visions of creatures, of beings um, popping up. And they seemed 100% real and they seemed intelligent and they would sometimes give messages. And what what is a being <laughs> other than what how it presents itself to us? I mean, I suppose what I'm saying there is... When we're in the presence of a person, you know, how do we know that that's a person? (laughs) Well, all we've got to go on is, you know, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, (laughs) you know. Um, At the end of the day, that's it. It's just the phenomena, isn't it? So why would we assume that if we're meditating and a vision of some sort of creature pops up, that that's not a being. Yeah, it's it's just I find it reassuring to not see humans as a, above everything else, and it's just a opinion. But I I think consciousness is in everything, and and I find that so reassuring, <laughs> and it helps it it make it helps make more sense of things to me. Like it it takes pressure off me to to understand things. I feel more connected to stuff. So other thing other things can sort of take some of the weight of understanding existence if you know what i mean <laughs> it's, um yeah yeah i mean to be honest i suspect that there'll never be any evidence for bigfoot there'll never be any evidence for ufo's or gray aliens but that for me doesn't mean that they that they don't exist in some meaningful sense, that they're not beings. Because, of course, you know, people keep seeing them. People keep having experiences of them. You know, I don't think there will ever be any material evidence for these things. But um, lots of things that don't exist are really important. You know, I mean, like money, for instance. (laughs) You know, there's there's no, no such thing as money. All we have are representations of it. You know, there is literally no thing called money, is there? You know, there's there's numbers in your bank account or there's, you know, notes that represent money. But money is nowhere to be found. And yet yet look at the the impact that believing in the existence of money has upon the world. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. <laughs> well, Duncan, this has been a really fun and interesting chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. If people want to find out more about your uh, occult experiments in the home project, how best do they do that? Uh, Probably 
my website, um, oeith.co.uk, OEITH, Occult Experiments in the Home. And the podcast itself has come to an end now. Um, like I said, it was always a kind of brain dump of my experiences. And um, I got to the end. You know, I've basically talked about <laughs> all the kind of uh, weird and bizarre experiences I've ever had. So um, they're all still available, though. So, you know, hopefully folks might um, like to pick through the titles and see if there's anything there that they might enjoy listening to. But there's all sorts, demons, angels, Ouija boards, you know, absolutely everything. And... Um, I'm going to go on and uh, develop some some new podcasts, which will take uh, a slightly different angle, but there'll be details about those on the website too, in case anybody's interested. Brilliant. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your Occult Experiments in the Home podcast, and I, I look forward to the new projects you've got coming up. And I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Lovely. Thanks ever so much, Rick. Take care. Thank you, Duncan. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Duncan. As mentioned, the Alcohol Experiments in the Home podcast has finished, but he is now involved in two new shows, a solo project called Hierophany, which explores the symbology of the Western esoteric tradition, and Warp FM, a collaborative work with his friend Alan Chapman, where they look at issues and problems in contemporary occultism and try to offer solutions from their own experiences. All of Duncan's output is well worth a listen if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.